This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the latest episode of the Wheelhouse Podcast. This is episode number 53. We're still kind of new to being on Root Sports. We've been on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast this whole time. And the way it works is we'll have a shorter version of the podcast here on Root Sports for you. If you'd like the full unedited version, which is typically close to about an hour, you can find us wherever you find your podcast. So, Jerry, uh, the Mariners are back home. They've been playing well lately, coming off a winning road trip. And you've had uh, some big moments in your personal life. Congratulations to your son. Not only was he drafted, as we talked about on the last wheelhouse by the Royals, but uh, you were just in San Diego to see his graduation. How was that? Uh, it was a thrill. I, I, I think the latter was more of a thrill than the former, <laughs> if that's possible. But, yeah, it was, uh, it was a thrill for, for Tammy and I. We were there to watch Jonah, his fiance, uh, walk together and – and to, to have your kids graduate college, also to be free of college tuitions for the first time in my uh, in the last decade is very exciting. So uh, very happy for him. And he went out and started his professional career yesterday. He's in Surprise, Arizona, getting ready to to do his thing. And the Royals will determine where he goes from here. How do you balance being a dad, but also being a dad whose life has been in professional baseball when it comes to uh, fatherly advice to your son beginning his professional baseball career? You know, I only gave him very, well, very few points of advice, but the thing that I urged him most was just, I hope you love it because if you love it, you have a chance. And, and if you don't love it, the, and, and when I mean love it, he loves baseball. He loves doing what you have to love the grind. You have to love getting out of bed at crazy early hours to go over to extended spring training facilities and hit the weight room and run in the 110 degree heat. You have to love the grind when you're out there in the middle of the day and there's seven fans in a super hot facility watching a game that sometimes tend to get a little sloppy you have to love the grind when you are putting your stuff in the back of a car and running from from surprise arizona to idaho falls to burlington north carolina to wilmington delaware that it's a grind and and the players the people who love it and embrace that challenge they have a chance i always said to people who were wanting to get into minor league baseball on the employee side not on the player side you, you always have to like being abused just a little bit because there's no other line of work that I can think of where you will make uh, essentially below minimum wage. I mean, they basically pay you in peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for 18-hour days with ridiculous bus travel and really not a square meal for the better part of six to seven months. It's a little unique, but if you love it, it's the best job in the world. I, I, I loved it. And, you know, I will say that now, especially from, uh, from the food <laughs> let's go to the chase, yeah, Jerry. We, we, have, we, we do and have over the course of, let's say, the last half dozen years, but specifically over the last three or four, have really focused on minor league player nutrition, making sure that we are putting players in a position to be successful. How we feed them, how we take care of them, 
uh, is Jonah. He reported yesterday, and, and they feed them a meal, a breakfast at the hotel. They feed them two meals at the ballpark, uh, a lunch and a dinner, and then they give them meal money to make sure that there is, uh, they're growing boys, you know, get a, another meal in them. And it's not like I know when, when I was in the minor leagues and we're in Kinston, North Carolina, and I, we were getting a ridiculously low per diem. You know? And when I say ridiculously low, I, I don't know, $12 a day? And, and uh, the team bus would stop at Hardee's, and, and you'd jump out to, to try to eat, and you have to really parse your, your $12 carefully when you're eating in – you're eating out or in fast food restaurants and by the time a summer ends if you allow yourself to you could be a house <laughs> so you have to control it you know now we recognize that having gone through that for multiple decades and and this generation of baseball organization and I think it's 30 for 30 I think all 30 major league clubs have a new and updated way to to take care of their players in a much more modern way especially the way they eat. Episode 53 is off and running. Once again, I'm Aaron Goldsmith. He is General Manager Jerry DePoto. Colin O'Keefe, as always, is our maestro. And Jerry, the Mariners are in a pattern right now of 500 baseball, which relative to what we saw in the month of May is a pretty good thing. The Mariners have alternated wins and losses for the last 13 games. Uh, what have you seen from the Mariners, especially on the last road trip where they took two series out of three series that they played? But I think it's a really good thing, and you know it's it's somewhat frustrating when you you win one, you lose one, and it's that volley. But it, based on what we watched in the month of May, it's been refreshing to see us play a little better. It's also something that I think through the rest of the season, if we're doing that, it means we're competitive. And you know we knew when we set out on this trail uh, to start 2019, or even dating to last fall. We knew that this was going to be tough, that, that there would be very rocky points in this schedule, that we would have moments where we were playing poorly, and we were hopeful that, that we were better than what we showed in May. And, and I think we're showing that we are better because it's been two weeks of win one, lose one, and we're playing good teams. You know, we're, we're playing the Houston Astros. We're playing the Minnesota Twins. We're playing the Angels and the A's. And, and teams that, quite frankly, have shown over the course of the last six or eight weeks to be in a better position than we are. So the fact that we've been more competitive is encouraging to me. Uh, I, I hope we're able to win two in a row at some point. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm very encouraged by how the team is starting to play together. And our roster, for better or worse, moving forward, should be a little bit more stable. San's trying to figure out how to, to solve some of the consistency issues in the bullpen. So my four-year-old son is obsessed with the Mariners. He's obsessed with baseball in general. He loves the high strike. I mean, there is a big hole. Can he throw high strikes? (laughs) (laughs) Because I'm in if he can throw high strikes. So he has a great tradition every morning. We have a great tradition every morning. As I'm making breakfast, he flips on the MLB.TV app in our living room, and he will watch the condensed game from the Mariners broadcast the night before. And then after he watches the Mariners game, he will then go to – he has a kind of a core stable of three or four other teams that he goes to automatically, one of which is the Tampa Bay Rays. And it has nothing to do with the fact that all the players that he knew from last year are now on the Rays. It has more to do with the fact that his T-ball team was the Tampa Bay Rays. So there's you know a great connection there. Is he an opener for his T-ball team? He <laughs> throws the high strikes? <laughs> So he was watching this morning, and uh, as you know, last night the Rays were in New York. They're playing the Yankees. And I'm making breakfast, and I hear Jackson say, Hey, Dad, there's an Encarnacion on the Yankees. 
It's like, yeah, man, that's uh, it's like Smith in baseball. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, that's that's the same one. Well, where'd he go? It's like, well, he got he got traded. Well, why? Ah, you know, it's kind of complicated for your four-year-old. So let's take this opportunity to explain the Encarnacion trade because really, there's a lot of layers to this, and it really starts with a winter deal, a big deal between the Mariners and the Phillies. So can you kind of take us through the winding road of Mariners acquisitions and departures and where we are now? It's We can start with the Edwin. It might meander in multiple different sure. directions, but using that transaction, you know, we'll call it a transaction bubble. You know, each transaction tends to, it, it feeds into another transaction somewhere down the line. And when we made, we'll go back, we'll call it the Gene Segura trade. We made the Gene Segura trade with the Philadelphia Phillies. And it's off-season. We are building toward uh, uh, what we've called a step-back or reimagined roster, whatever you want to reference it as. We were starting to reload our roster. We wanted to get younger. We wanted to get more flexible. We wanted to get more controllable as we moved into the future. And as we talked about on the, on the wheelhouse, this broadcast, and others, we identified J.P. Crawford as a pretty critical piece to what we were trying to do as a soon-to-be 24-year-old shortstop who we thought had everyday capability, just needed a little bit more finish, and then an opportunity in a different address. You know, the, Some players thrive when they have a new opportunity with new voices and a new market, et cetera. Well, we made the trade, the Segura trade with the Phillies, in a market that really wasn't swimming with a ton of interest from contending teams in a shortstop. So many of the contending teams had that position filled. And Gene, a very good player, coming off an all-star season, we were able to leverage a deal with the Phillies in order to move Gene and acquire J.P. Crawford. We took back Carlos Santana in that deal. In so doing, we were able to, to tack on Juan Nicasio and the $9 million owed him, as well as James Pazos uh, in, the, in the trade. Uh, Pazos has since been waived, picked up by the Rockies. He's pitching in AAA. Nicasio is pitching in the Phillies bullpen. And we immediately took Carlos Santana and spun it into a three-team trade with Cleveland and Tampa where we ended up receiving Edwin Encarnacion, who we thought was a comparable player to, to Carlos Santana in terms of real market value. In so doing, we reduced future payroll by another $12 million, took on Santana, and acquired a comp round draft pick, which we cashed in just this past, well, this month and turned it into Isaiah Campbell, who was the ace for Arkansas, a second round pick in this year's draft, and what we think is a solid middle of the rotation, three, four type starter in the big leagues who should be pretty quick through the minor leagues. Has two real now pitches in a low mid-90s fastball and a real wipeout slider. And what we've seen is a developing changeup. Well, we also had Edwin Encarnacion, who took the first half of the season and threw up about 1.7 Fangraphs war, you know, F war, and gave us every opportunity to maximize his his market value. Unfortunately, similar to what we experienced with Gene Segura in the fall, there was no real need in the market for a DH first offense, a, a bat. And, you know, we, there was not a lot of interest through the offseason. There was not a lot of interest through the early season. 
But here recently, due, due in large part to his performance, there were teams that had determined, all right, if we can come up with some kind of financial uh, agreement here, there is a prospect value we're willing to give up. So as we said from the start, we were willing to absorb you know, some or in some cases most of these contracts to buy prospect value. And that's what we did with the Yankees in order to get Juan 10. He's Juan is a kid that we've had before. He's, you know, when we traded him away as a 16 or 17 year old, uh, he was more the projection fringy stuff type uh, who would bump a 92, pitch around 89 or 90, and he showed you flashes of a slider. Today, he's bumping 96. He has a real now slider. He has the developing third pitch. He's 19, he throws strikes, and he's already played above the DSL, which we think is an advantage. So if we flash back now, in the the original Gene Segura trade, the original Gene Segura trade resulted in uh, us acquiring J.P. Crawford, Isaiah Campbell, Juan Ten, half a season of of productivity from Edwin Encarnacion, and we cleared about $58 million in future payroll freedom that we think is important because as these players start to descend upon the big leagues and and get their footing and we feel like we have a chance to be in a competitive zone and and contend in 2021 2022 you know we are we have now the financial capability or the payroll flexibility to really lay it down when the opportunity comes rather than being committed to aged players who we're trying to figure out how to get rid of because we didn't get ahead of the curve at the appropriate time. It's all timing. So it sounds like, in other words, and I have to imagine that this is kind of a hard thing to have happen for a man in your position. Everybody can have great master plans. They might not always transpire, especially when you're talking about a timeline of, let's call it, four or five, six months. This has pretty well worked out how you were hoping that it would in many ways. Sans the not winning games in May? Yeah. Uh, the, 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 specifically the, the acquisition of Encarnacion and how you're able to spin these parts, move these parts, and get young pitching. Just how we had imagined it. You know, and I know, I know it doesn't make sense oftentimes for, for the fan when they're watching the individual trade, but we're looking at it from a larger perspective. We're also looking at it in aggregate. So it, there were roughly 10 trades that went into building our current foundation what we're trying to do at the at, with this year's roster in, in reformating it or reformatting it uh, we have 10 trades that included the Cano Diaz trade with the Mets the Segura trade with the Phillies the Paxton trade with the Yankees the Zanino trade with the Rays smaller deals that included you know picking up Tom Murphy in a small trade with the Giants picking up relievers you mean Johnny Bench Yes, him. Uh, Johnny Bennett with a better body. <laughs> you know, uh, Connor Sadzik. It's it's uh, it's Austin Adams, who's been you know, maybe as, as intriguing as any reliever we've thrown out down there. You know, it, it's been a series of trades that ha- that started last off season. I think there are ten in total. And what we were trying to do was bring in young, controllable players to build with. And and in that group, if you count guys like Kellenick and Dunn, guys like Jake Fraley and Malik Smith, who I think we're now starting to see the, the real value in Malik Smith and, and what he's capable of doing. You know, while we've not seen great results from Justice Sheffield and Eric Swanson, we have from Dom Thompson-William, and we think collectively just the age and upsides of those players are probably being undersold. 
I think you're now seeing why we targeted J.P. Crawford. Uh, we do believe in the arms that we've started to add, and it's it's getting exciting for the people at our at our minor league level to see these players grow. But you know, when you're dealing famous players or all-star quality players like an Edwin Encarnacion, you want immediate satisfaction. We're not going to win the American League West. And Edwin Encarnacion was not going to play for the Mariners in 2020. So we were, it, was, it was incumbent upon us to make good decisions for the Mariners organization. And this was why we made the deal, because we acquired players that now in aggregate have a chance to contribute toward what we think is a nice, growing, young foundation of players. And though fans do want you know, immediate positive returns, and you won't necessarily see that in 110, as you mentioned, J.P. Crawford is part of the deal that set Edwin Encarnacion out. He's effectively part of that deal along with Gene Segura, and you can watch him make diving plays right now just like we did in Oakland, and he's set to be a Mariner. He has baseball reference him, has him under club control through 2023. Be set to be here for a while. So if you want immediate satisfaction, it's not always there, but in this case, you might actually get a little bit by watching J.P. Crawford. Yeah, and he should actually be here through 24. But the, you know, at the at the end of the day, finding middle of the field, young middle of the field players who can move your your team forward. One thing that we have learned over time, uh, it's all of these trades won't work. You know, somebody is going to fall short of expectation. Somebody's going to exceed the expectation, and sometimes it's going to be multiple of those somebodies in both direction. But the one thing we know for sure over time is that if you want pitching, you have to get it in spades. You need volume, because if you think one or two guys is going to to move your needle, you're crazy. Attrition just grabs them. It's part of the reason for this year's draft strategy. It's part of what we have done in acquisitions like Sheffield, like Justin Dunn, like Juan Ten. We're, we're gathering as much of this upside as we can, understanding that attrition will grab a certain number of them, and we want them to get through. We went into the early part of June really riding a high crest of, of success for Logan Gilbert, for Justin Dunn at our minor league system, you know, watching the, the struggles of Justice Sheffield for the first two months of the year and trying to gain his traction. You know, the up-and-down nature, I guess hamstrung, no pun intended, but with Eric Swanson's season to date, although he's back today. So, you know, we, we have a group of three or four pitching prospects who – two of whom were doing really nice things, one of whom was really intriguing you, and the other of whom might be more talented than all of them. We just got to get them on track. But we were putting ourselves in a position to have to go three for four or four for four. We needed to get more at-bats in order to make sure that we develop the, the kind of core pitching that's required to win a championship, and we feel like we've gone a long way toward that in the last two, three weeks alone. With so many new faces that you brought in over the winter that are in the minors right now, it is amazing how many of them are performing at such a high level. Justice Sheffield, obviously going down to to AA Arkansas. What's the hope to get him in a clubhouse, which has got to have a really great vibe with as well as they have played? And I'm guessing maybe some players closer to his age, if that's at all a factor or not. What's the hope with him in the Texas League now? You know, well, he was the youngest player in in Tacoma. Justice is just 23 years old, and he is, well, he's pitching this year as a 23-year-old. He is the same age as the guys who are down there, Evan White and and Kyle Lewis, and I guess Jake Fraley would be the senior of them at 24 now. 
out. But it's uh, Justin Dunn, also 23. Uh, th- the idea here is very similar to what we did back in 2016 with James Paxton and with Mike Zanino. It's very similar to what we did in May with Malik Smith. We, we sat down. We got Brian DeLunis, Paul Davis. We got uh, with Lance Painter, Max Weiner, our pitching people. And we got together with our developmental group and tried to lay out a plan for what we want Justice Sheffield to accomplish over the course of the next three months. And, and lay out a plan, then visit with him on here's the plan, here's how we're going to measure your levels of success, and we just want you to go be you. Uh, I think that Justice, through the course of his early time here, and we've talked about it, He's, he was traded for a premium player, and not the first time he's experienced it in his life, but it's the first time he's experienced it when he's on the doorstep of the big leagues. And he pitched so well in spring training, and then the devastation of being sent back to AAA, I think, led to a lot of pressing on his part to do more than he's capable of doing. Justice is healthy. His fastball's still up to 96, 97 miles an hour at times. He's averaging 93 and a half, 94 most nights. There's still very good spin to what we think is a well above average breaking ball, and there's above average action on a real changeup. The the biggest thing for Justice is just learning how to control the pace of his game on the mound, and and hopefully we're able to do that in in Arkansas. and And it starts by throwing strike one, and it it starts by winning one one counts. It starts by really holding down the walks. You can't give out the free passes like that, and. And we think he can do that because he's athletic, he's smart, and he works hard. And he's a really good listener. We just have to put him in an environment where we can now coach him and, and, and give him the chance for success where we just weren't able to do that in the PCL and the environment that they're playing in right now. It is a bit of a you – know, it's a lightning show in the PCL. I don't know if you've watched, but hopefully we can get him right. In a season that has been uh, littered with – Big league debuts, certainly Mariner debuts. Austin Nola is one of the latest. Uh, he made a, a sensational diving catch. Really, he's made a couple of really nice plays already in just two games in a Mariner's uniform. Uh, a 29-year-old rookie making his major league debut, picking up his first big league hit in the second pitch that he sees in the show. I mean, this is a really good story for him, and I'd have to imagine for a guy who's waited as long as he has coming out of a really premium baseball program at LSU uh, to take this long to make his major league debut. This has got to be as sweet for him as it is for any player. I would think so. And the the grind, again, going through it the way that Austin went through it, you know, he was, uh, he was a shortstop. He was like a team leader at LSU when they had a phenomenal run of success. Did he play He's, with LeMayhew at LSU? Uh, he played just after LeMayhew. Okay. Uh, I, I want to say that Austin may have been a sophomore when LeMayhew, or a freshman when LeMayhew was drafted. Um, Austin was the shortstop who followed LeMayhew. So, you know, DJ played shortstop, second base, mostly shortstop during his time at LSU, and Austin was his successor. Uh, and three years ago, Austin transitioned primarily to a catcher. And, you know, you're seeing now with the, his play at first base, he's super versatile. He's, he's, he has a high baseball IQ. And we throw that around sometimes too much. Austin really does have a high baseball IQ. We think he has the ability to be a versatile utility player, kind of a, a second, third catcher who can also play virtually any other position on the field. He's made a swing change and gives you more than a competent at bat. He's, he can run a count. He gets deep into counts. He's swinging the bat better now than he has truly in his lifetime. He wasn't, he wasn't this good an offensive player in college. So to see what he's doing and has been doing all year, 
he was the very first guy down to Peoria after we acquired him as a free agent this offseason. Uh, invested time with our hitting instructors in the swing change group and really focused on, on getting the ball airborne. Was also the initial phone call into our catcher's university, our, our framing and game calling program. Uh, Dan Wilson and Tony Arnerich put this together through the offseason, and it just so happened that the, the day after Austin Nola signed with us, we started our, our pitch calling you. And and he was the first guy on the phone. And he's a, he's a wonderful guy. The makeup's awesome. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made it this far at 29. And I think it's a great story. And this is exactly what we should be doing in the mode that we're in, is, is finding out about versatile players who have nuanced skills and who might wind up being nice role players for, for our club as we move forward. Austin, you know, obviously the PCL is the PCL, but he had never slugged so much as 400 in any year in his minor league career. He slugged 520 this year for the Rainiers. So it's pretty wild, you know, if it's the result of the swing change, that's, you know, something to keep an eye on as we progress now over the second half of 2019. And it's not just the swing change, it's just better swing decisions. And it's it's one of the things, we're, it's Tuesday. Can we say that? It's Tuesday? We are Um, recording this on Tuesday. It is Tuesday. Last night's game, we made good good swing decisions we were not rewarded by good calls you know but we made good swing decisions you know somehow we have to transition from a team that makes good swing decisions into a team that makes good swing decisions and gets good results so we're slowly but surely we're seeing a lot of our players grow Austin Nola has taken some of these theories philosophies he's run with it and he's turned himself into the best version of himself as a player that he's ever been. And couldn't be more excited for him, for his family. You know, now have it's now it's a thing. He's two brothers in the big things. Yeah, it's very cool. And what a Father's Day for uh, his dad, who when he made his major league debut on Father's Day. If only Aaron was pitching on that same day. Although then he'd have to have the phone open and be watching one game while being in the Coliseum. So maybe it was a good thing after all. Hey, how many phone calls? do you have to make to get Daniel Vogel back in the home run derby? And what's the process here? How many doors do you kick down, Jerry? You swing, throw some weight around on this one? We're, tr- we're trying. You know, heavens knows. We've got some weight to throw and Maybe around. an all-star yeah. game as well. Forget just the derby. There's, I, I think Vogel – well, first of all, I think there's a legitimate you know, Vogel, Omar Narvaez, or, or somehow take Omar Narvaez, Tom Murphy, and turn them into <laughs> Omar Tom Narvaez Murphy. Uh, there's – our all-stars or or potential all-stars Vogie's you know chief among them in terms of his I guess his deserving to be at the all-star game whether they let him hit in the home run contest that's not a th- now the the home run derby is selected by last year's winners they, they serve as team captains so you know the team captains get to determine who they're going to invite and when, when inevitably they are turned down by six or eight people who don't want to do it, sometimes they get to, uh, they get to that next tier. And while Vogie's never been an all-star, this is right now we're on track for his first full major league season, I'm not sure that he has the black book or the network to wind up in that without some kind of outpouring. Like, we want to see this. So the easiest way to see it is for fans to chatter, for fans to talk. We've already lobbied Major League Baseball to keep him in mind because, frankly, he's he's a, turning into a bit of a folk hero here in what he does, and he's such an entertaining player. And when Vogie takes batting practice, it is really notable how far he hits the ball. And, and I think the, the baseball world would be shocked if they saw him in that kind of environment. 
So we got to just digitally whisper in Bryce Harper's ear just a little bit to let him know that Vogie would love to be there. I will say I'm very encouraged to hear that Vogie actually wanted to do it, having put out the hashtag Vogie for Home Run Derby. <laughs> Somewhat of a reserved guy occasionally, so I was very thankful that he was like, oh, yeah, I'd love to do it. So that's good to see. I think, And this thing's worth – I'm glad you brought that up because he is much more reserved with a microphone in his face than he is – with no microphone. I mean, it's like... Because he is not reserved. He's not reserved no at all. But he becomes much more subdued and much more mellow when you... It's like, D- Daniel, be you. Please, can you... It's okay. I know you haven't been in the big leagues that long, but we can have fun with this. But he's a, he's a fantastic guy and a wonderful personality. And I have a feeling with time, maybe a few more home runs, that personality will start to come out more on the record. Oh, I think it will on the record. I also think that Vogie's growing into a bit of a leadership role on our team, which is stunning for a guy who's in his first full season. But there's been so much activity around our roster over the course of the last couple of years. Oddly enough, Vogie is one of the more tenured players we have. He's been in the organization since 2016, and and he's familiar with this group. The coaches love him. I don't think there's a single teammate who's come past you know Vogie's locker that doesn't doesn't ultimately fall in love with him because he's such an easy player to root for, and he's a happy person. He encourages the people around him. He's energetic. He's he's bubbly, and then you put a microphone in front of him and. He climbs up. (laughs) (laughs) He powers down. Hopefully not for much longer. Mariners.com slash blog. That is where you can find weekly recaps on some of the top performers in the Mariners minor league system. Uh, Everett opens up at home on Friday. The Mariners short season affiliate. Not far, of course, here from T-Mobile Park. Uh, George Kirby, number one overall draft pick. Please tell us all about Kirby, his stuff, uh, what you guys like so much about him, and how, of course, he eventually became a Mariner. Well, you know, George George will pitch at Everett. We're because the college pitchers tend to pile up some innings. We are going to be a little slower in getting them to the mound. So he's not scheduled to pitch in the next week, but sometime in the next two, he's he's now working into his throwing program along with Brandon Williamson, who was our second rounder in this draft out of TCU. We do expect now that Arkansas has been bounced to to see Isaiah Campbell shortly. We are likely to take it really lightly with Isaiah's innings because he piled up more than the others. And we've already seen the pro debut of Tim Elliott, uh, who we drafted in this draft, and we expect to add Levi Stout here shortly, though we're not anticipating him pitching many innings. But the you know the group, we're, we're, we're hoping to bring this group along. George Kirby was a guy who, when we went into the draft, we thought of as it's Four major league pitches. It's a fastball up to 97, 98 miles an hour. He sits around 94. He's got good action on the fastball. He sinks it down. He really rides it up. He's got the ability to live at the top of the strike zone. He's got two now polished major league breaking balls. Really all he needs is the consistency in commanding them. And he was, we thought, the most elite strike thrower, command pitcher in this draft class. So to get that package of skills at number 20. Uh, and he pitched at Elon at a mid-major, and generally speaking, if George Kirby would have done the things that he did at Elon versus pretty good competition, it's not like Elon plays you know a, a Patsy schedule, versus pretty good competition, if he would have done that at TCU, he probably would have been the first five players picked. And, and we were excited to get the opportunity to pick him at number 20, we thought he was a very comparable draft talent or draft day discussion as Logan Gilbert in terms of stuff and approach. Uh, 
George probably throws a little bit harder than, than Logan on the, the upside. Uh, Logan probably has more now, definitely has more now command of his secondary weapons. They're both very smart guys. We thought very comparable to one another. He will start in Everett. We're probably likely to limit those starts to two or three innings in length with all these guys, with Williamson, with Elliott, with Isaiah Campbell, and get them all prepared like Logan for a pretty quick trip in their first foray into full season baseball in 2020 where they may start in West Virginia and, and move on to Modesto or they may just start in Modesto because we we have now built up some some pitching volume and unlike Logan they are pitching this summer so you know they're, they're going to get their feet wet in pro ball and we'll see if we can maybe promote them in an accelerated fashion because we think every one of those guys I just mentioned including Tim Elliott who's maybe an under the radar guy have a chance to move pretty quickly. Quickly, I had a really interesting conversation. Wes Johnson, as you know, the first-year pitching coach for the Twins. He's like the vogie of pitching coaches. Yeah. <laughs> Super energetic and a very <laughs> nice guy. He spent his last two years, we spent a lot of time, his career in college, college pitching coach, but his last two years with the Razorbacks, and he coached Isaiah Campbell. And when we were at Target Field, I had a chance to – and pitching coaches are not easy to track down, as you know. And uh, he gave me a few minutes uh, very politely. And he said that Isaiah Campbell is one of – the best young men that he's ever worked with. He was so thrilled that he was drafted as high as he was. I mean, you could not have gotten a more glowing report from his former college pitching coach, now in the big leagues, Wes Johnson, doing great things, which was awesome to hear. I'm sure you guys knew all about Isaiah's uh, character, his personality, and his makeup off the field. Uh, we did, and you know, we had the benefit of he had actually worked with our director of pitching strategy, Brian DeLunis, back in the day when Isaiah was leaving high school on his way to, to college and and preparing for the draft as a high school senior. He worked for a bit with Brian DeLunis, who also had very nice things to say about him. But terrific talent, and he, he performed his tail off in the toughest country, the toughest conference in the country. To, when you pitch the way he pitched in the SEC against that type of competition on Friday nights with the spotlight on you, He's got a fastball, too, as well as, as George, a fastball that gets up to 97 miles an hour, sits in the 92, 94 range. He's got a, it, maybe what we thought was the best breaking ball in the, in the first round of this draft. It's a, it was a legitimate big league now slider, and you know, it gives him the chance to miss bats, and, and he did that at Arkansas. There's, you can't perform much better than these guys performed, and, and we think Isaiah, having pitched on Friday nights in the SEC, has already effectively pitched at a full season level. They're, they're like the quality of baseball on that night in that conference is every bit as good as what you'll see in the Sally League. So we do believe that Isaiah will have the opportunity, as a result of that experience, to move a little quicker. Jerry, take us to the Dominican, the DSL Mariners, 17-year-old Noel V. Marte, shortstop. Uh, what do you expect from this young man who's uh, just getting his pro career off the ground? We feel as excited about Noelve as we did about Julio Rodriguez at the same stage in his development. Uh, Noelve was a high-profile sign for us, I believe among the top five or eight on most national lists for the best available international player the year before last. 
and we were fortunate enough to sign him as a 16-year-old. And we had pretty high competition to, to bring him in. So really glad we were able to, to, to rope him in. We think it's a five-tool guy. He's already showing that. He's a shortstop who we believe has the chance to stay at shortstop. He's also a big physical guy. So we think there's some possibility that he grows off of the position just due to sheer growth possibilities because he is a, he's a big physical person. And, uh, and if so, we think there's more than enough bat there to carry third base as an outcome. He has truly all the tools. He hits. He hits for power. He, ha- he runs well. He can really throw. I, again, the range to play shortstop. And as he grows into his school s- skill set, we'd like to see him uh, just rope in the control of the strike zone. It's not something we focus on heavily uh, at the Dominican summer level because we want them to experience what they're capable of before starting to rope them in. And right now we're finding that Noelvi is capable of being one of the best players in that league and certainly one of the more intriguing young prospects in our organization. Now we, we talk about where our prospects rank on, on top 100 lists or who they're missing on, and it took them a little while to, to smell out Julio Rodriguez, and now you're seeing his name start to creep onto these lists, and, and I think they'll start moving pretty quickly north. We think Noel Marte is in that same general area code, that, that he has that kind of skill set, and, and over the next year, year and a half, as a, a young teen, you Noel, know, he's 17 years old, as, as he starts to grow – you know, 18, 19 years old, like where we are with Julio Rodriguez, he will start getting that national stage notoriety because this is this guy is the real deal. He's a good prospect who has a chance to not just be an everyday player in the big leagues, but an impact everyday player with potential all-star type ceiling. Because of his physical stature, is there a, or the potential of it, is there a possible comp with Carlos Correa or somebody? I mean, that's the guy who comes to mind who's really big for his position. Yeah, he is that physical, you know, at, at least at a comparable age. Sure. And, you know, the, we, we look at players like that, and oftentimes you just look, you look at the size of their, their hands and their feet. You know, how much bigger is this guy going to get? And, you know, when you're signing kids at 16, this is one of the nuances. You know, I think Joe Maurer, when Joe Maurer was drafted, 1-1 by the Minnesota Twins, uh, great high school multi-sport player. He's drafted as a six-three, six-four catcher who was also a high quarterback uh, recruit that was going to Florida. He's the number State. one high school football yeah, player in the country. In the country, and usually when you get into that six-three, six-four range with the catchers, the the old-time baseball scouts will get very skittish about ah, you know, it's the big catchers. It's tough for those guys to stay behind the plate. Uh, lo and behold, Joe signs that I think on draft day is 6'3". By the time he gets to the big leagues, he's 6'6". And, and, you know, sometimes they're not done growing when you get them that young. And, and uh, you know, credit to Joe, gold glove, awesome catcher, I, debatable, uh, Hall of Famer. I mean, it's a, he had an awesome career. We see Noelve's growth potential just by looking at the, the bone structure, the hands, the feet, and the fact that he's just now turned 17 years old. He's not done growing and has a chance to be a big physical guy. Hopefully he keeps his dexterity, you know, the, the small space movements that allow you to play shortstop with skill like a Correa does. Uh, time will tell, but we do believe in the total package, and we think it's one of the highest impact bats that we've brought into the system in the time that I've been here. And we also try to help him grow a little bit. I remember seeing him last fall down at the high-performance camp, mixing it up with Julio. Logan was there at the time, even though he hadn't thrown a pro pitch. So 
yeah, it's nice to see those guys helped along. They have a, a busy first year in the organization. It's a really exciting group of young players, and and they're tiered. You know, we, we talked earlier about it being a game of timing. You know, the, the first tier you're seeing here, the first tier is J.P. Crawford and Malik Smith. It's Daniel Vogelbach. It's a healthy Mitch Hanniger. There's a group here that really starts to form the foundation as we move forward. Uh, the next tier you're starting to see pool up between Tacoma and Arkansas with Justice Sheffield and Justin Dunn and Jake Fraley and Kyle Lewis and Evan, a smoking hot Evan White, uh, Dom Thompson-Williams and others. And then that the tier behind that now starts to pull up with, with Kellenick and Julio Rodriguez and Logan Gilbert, Noel de Marte, the kids we just brought in via the draft, Cal Raleigh, just to name a few. And, and they, they, we start to build these waves, and as the waves – I go all poetic on you, but as the waves start cresting toward the shore, you know, the, the sand will stick and not all of it is going to, to end up as, as impactful as we think. But the fact that we've now built waves is critical to our future success. I'm excited for today's Tump JD for its simplicity and for how topical it is. And I think you've got a chance at it. Which there's three great reasons. What do you think, Jerry? I'm 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 in. Okay, uh, you know the Seattle Pilots, their expansion brethren, were the Kansas City Royals back in 1969. And as you've established, we are recording this on a Tuesday, uh, middle game of the series against Kansas City. Jerry, the Royals were born on April 8th, 1969, and I need you to tell me who had the first hit in Kansas City Royals history. Who had the first hit in Kansas City Royals history? I'm going to go with Lou Pinella. Yes, Jerry. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I feel well, like this was, this was a layup. Oh, I don't know. I mean, I, th- I felt good about your chances. I wouldn't, If I give you a layup, I did my job wrong. Rookie of the year. Rookie of the year. Yeah. He went four for five leading off at center field in the first game in Royals history. I mean, that's, that's Look, pretty good. I'll tell you what. You go, we, we talked, I don't know if it was the last episode or two episodes ago when we were going through the, the stump date. If, when we talked about Frank Robinson's oh, right, legacy, yeah. you go look at Lou Pinella's legacy. This guy's, he's, he's been an all-star player, a rookie of the year, uh, a multi-time world champion, both as a player and as a manager. He's, he, I guess, captained the winningest team of, in regular season history. He has, he has done just about everything you could do in baseball. And I don't know why the Baseball Hall of Fame doesn't – categorically pull the the aggregate of a baseball career the impact because Lou was an above average major league player had an awesome run as a major league manager and did things from a managerial standpoint not just in the dugout but kind of like Bobby Cox he did things from a front office perspective that give him a breadth of experiences and impact in the game that really should be acknowledged by by the Hall of Fame and I don't think the Hall of Fame is is looking at it as myopically as ah he wasn't a good enough player he wasn't a good enough manager he was, Lou Pinella should be in the Hall of Fame for his life in baseball and there's a group of people like that and I think they should be acknowledged. We were so close to Edgar and Lou going in together too and that's he should get in I, well, and, and I hope like he does. One of the most entertaining people the game has ever seen. I want to hear the speech right, is the only reason I'm for stumping something. for it. Yeah, it should be wildly entertaining. And Full Circle was also, of course, taken by the Pilots in the expansion yeah. draft. there you go. 
Career 291 hitter over parts of 18 big league seasons. Really good hitter. And, and I, I watched Lupinel a lot growing oh, up. Oh, and as a great head of hair early on. Oh, he did. Oh, my gosh. There's I mean, a, that's 80 great hair. This is good weave. There, and there were a lot of guys in the, that were playing on that team. If you were to, to drop out like the, a list of the 10 best sets of hair in the 1970s, I like it. Lupinella has to be on there. Bucky Dent. Bucky. The all team. Bucky Dent. Right, come on. There's a it, it was we got something. eight to go, but we've got other episodes. Oscar Gamble. Okay, seven down, seven to go. The best Afro in the history of baseball, bar bar none. There's, I can vividly remember my 1976 Topps baseball card of Oscar Gamble with the Cleveland Indians, appeared to be swinging and missing, which I didn't realize at the time. It just looked like a cool action photo. But <laughs> unbelievable! If you get the chance to go look at, back at the, the the Afro, give it a rip. We will look that up. We have nothing else to do until first pitch. Uh, you can always email the podcast, of course, thewheelhouse at mariners.com. Judd in Houston, who's been listening since the start, which we appreciate that, Judd. Uh, when you are in the draft, Jerry, are you and your team ever surprised by another team's pick where they value somebody way more than you do? Or does everybody have a fairly similar way of evaluating prospects? And maybe there aren't many surprises. And then he has a follow-up. Uh, does it make you think that they have different information or data that uh, maybe uh, the Mariners uh, didn't see or disagree on or look at differently? I would say that, and this predates my inclusion in the draft, but I would say that from 1965 through 2012, teams did things wildly differently. And 30 teams, most of them scouted in a different way. Many of them thought in a different way. You always had one team that had a you know a bend toward the super physical athlete and, and then another who was more performance-based. Here in, in 2019, there is a, uh, there's a move toward model-based drafting. And we're taking all of the information that we're gathering from the scouting lens we are combining it with the information that we are provided from the analytical end, and we are building a model. Effectively, we're, we're using the intellectual capacity driven by computer programs to give us a, a, a readout of what all our information is, is telling us. So what, if you take what our scouts think, what our analysts think, the way this player is performed, and combine them together, it, it will spit out a metric that, that – that gives you a pretty good read for how these players should line up. And, you know, it's a, that is happening widely across the league. The Houston Astros, when Jeff Lunau first arrived there, made great use of, of model-based scouting and drafting. Uh, they've probably been the most celebrated. I think the team that initially introduced this to baseball was the St. Louis Cardinals. And it, again, it's closing in on about a decade old. And, you know, we are a model-based team. I would say that makes us similar to about two-thirds of the league. So there aren't too many surprises on draft day. But I can tell you from sitting in the draft room for 21 years now, you, you sit – or 21 drafts – you sit in those draft rooms and inevitably somebody's going to call out a name in a round where, where the guys are looking at each other in the room like this. And it's not just because we're wondering why they took that player there. We've never heard of the guy. They're, they're, if you think about it, we're sorting through seven, 8,000 players to get to 1,000 names. And every team is doing that. And every single scout that you've ever met 
wants to be the one that goes to the center of the earth and uncovers the diamond that no one else knew was there. And the one that I find or I recall as being the most magnificent was some years back when the Chicago Cubs took a right-hand starter named Hayden Simpson in the first round of the draft. And it was, it was in the early years of MLB Network covering the draft. And, you know, the Cubs, and it was the middle of the first round, they select Hayden Simpson. And everybody in our room is looking at each other like this. Like, did we whiff on this that badly, a middle-of-the-first-round guy? We've got him in a much different place. And, a, and, and then the guys on Major League Network were just stumped. They had no idea who he was. They had no video. And the, <laughs> the, the whole show just stopped. All right, who is this? And, you know, I think John Hart's looking over at, at Jonathan Mayo like, I don't, I don't know. And, and they, were, they had to, to, to try to, to pull something out of their, their – their, their resources. Get a headshot? Anybody? Yeah. I think they had him somewhere ranked in the 220 or 230 range, and and he just went off in the middle of the first round, and and it was such a bizarre moment, and and then our area scout said, "Oh yeah, man, I saw this guy down at uh, in Alabama the, the other night in a conference tournament. He was up to 98. Wicked break him up. He started talking about, and it, why didn't anybody mention this before? <laughs> Uh, and it, it didn't work out for Hayden Simpson, but that was the, the most laughable moment in a draft because we, we didn't even spend any time talking about him, and, and he went off, I think, before the 20th pick in the draft. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, all the best to Hayden in his second career someplace. Well, the weekend uh, is going to be pretty nice here at the ballpark in Seattle. Friday, we've got Luau Hawaiian Shirt Night, the first 10,000 fans uh, bring home. Speaking of Lou, the – very famous-looking Lou Pinella Hawaiian shirt. Saturday, uh, speaking of the Pilots, we'll have turned back to clock day. First 20,000 fans will take home a uh, Seattle Pilots cap, thanks to Alaska Airlines. And then Sunday, Second Chance Father's Day, the giveaway of the season, the Rick Riz Talking Bottle Opener, the first 10,000 dads. You want to be able to snag one of those up. Jerry, as always, good catching up with you. Thank you for joining us. We know you're very busy, but it's been fun as always. Always. Oh,